0: We're going to be in the book of Zechariah chapter 13 tonight. Take your Bibles and turn there. Have you stand in just a few moments. We were in chapter 12 last week. And the reason I'm starting in the middle of chapter 13 is because really the initial verses of chapter 13 just dovetail and just a continuation of a thought. And uh, so I won't really belabor that or continue that. We'll just jump to the next major segment or thought that the Lord presents to us in the book of Zechariah. So, Zechariah chapter 13, we'll begin our reading in verse number 7, and read three verses tonight. The Bible says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, against the man that is my fellow, saith the Lord of hosts. Smite the shepherd, and the sheep shall be scattered, and I will turn my hand upon the little ones. And it shall come to pass that in all the land, saith the Lord, two parts therein shall be cut off and die, but the third shall be left therein. And I will bring the third part through the fire, and I will refine them as silver is refined, and I will try them as gold is tried. And they, and I add, this is to help them understand, then, after these events, they shall call on my name, and I will hear them, and I will say, it is my people, and they shall say, The Lord is my God. Our Heavenly Father, I pray the next few moments as we once again look into this ancient text, Lord, this this truth that is Your Word, uh, Lord, we understand that it was written to a specific audience to the Jewish people um, centuries ago. And yet Lord, because it is living and endures, it has application for us tonight. And Lord, there certainly is truth here that we need to hear and receive And so, Lord, I pray You'd grant us receptive hearts, and then, Lord, the ability to actually do something with the truth that we hear tonight. I ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Thank you so much for standing. There's a refrain that began in chapter 12, and uh, was repeated, I think, seven or eight times in that chapter. It is, once again repeated in chapter 13. And that phrase, the refrain, is simply this, in that day, in that day. That refrain, again, began in chapter 12. It refers to a future day, most likely a day in eschatology still yet in the future, um, most likely when Israel's regathered um, at the very end of the tribulational period. I, I, do, I don't know that for, for certain but this is a future day in the nation of Israel where God promises that in that day that a time of unprecedented blessing will come upon the nation a time of restoration a time of redemption a day when God himself will fight for the city against enemies that at that time will literally be circumnavigated around Jerusalem when it seems like hope was lost. And then God Himself um, will intervene into the world and human history and smite those enemies. And Israel at that time will be delivered. In response to God's deliverance of the nation, their eyes will be open to the truth about God, who He is. And more than that, they will understand in that day that Jesus Christ was not only their Messiah, but He was also currently their Savior. And they'll respond to that goodness and grace by God by repenting and then being washed and, and, and purified by God. When they, when they see God acting on their behalf, they will begin to truly, both in life and heart, to align themselves with God and His purposes and it will be a great day of blessing for the nation. Now, as we come to chapter 13, um, that narrative, that story, continues about that future day. And the theme there in the early verses of chapter 13 is again about re- repentance, and then God giving them forgiveness as a result of their repentance and purifying them. In that day, um, then continues throughout chapter 13, and really, um, the Bible talks about from that point on, in the early parts of chapter 13, which we did read, that God will cleanse idolatry, which is a little bit, you know, kind of understood, that when God intervenes and saves a nation, the people recognize who He is, well naturally then idolatry, uh, which will be rampant in the world uh, at the end times, will be eliminated. Those false teachers who would have taught idolatry will be ashamed, and, 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 and they too will turn away from those practices and so we really see God's goodness and His recognition and uh, the recognition of God, creating repentance, a changed life, and then doing things a better way. So Zechariah 13:7 really begins our text for tonight. <clears throat> Zechariah 13:7 is a verse that is quoted and familiar to us. This is something that Jesus said in his passion, but it's a verse that's re- recorded in three of the Gospels. Um, And this is the idea of a shepherd being smitten and the sheep scattered. Uh, We find this quote in Matthew 26, 31, Mark 14, 27, and then John 16, 32. This reference of Jesus to Zechariah chapter 13, verse 7. And the intent of the Lord was to extract a principle. And that's important for us to understand tonight. Jesus was extracting a principle um, it was really giving the disciples a process that God was about to engage in to accomplish a purpose um, in His people. Now, it's going to take a little bit of effort tonight for us to connect the dots between what Jesus is referring to and what Zechariah is saying, and we're going to make that effort tonight to make that connection. Once again, quick review, Zechariah is preaching to the post-exile Jewish community. This group of people who have returned from Babylon, now Babylon vanquished and Persia in control, after 70 years of captivity for sin and rebellion, idolatry, and and is forsaking God. Um, Zechariah is preaching to this group of people, and he's warning them against yielding to the sins of their forebears. Uh, don't give yourselves to idolatry. Don't give yourselves to corrupt politicians. Uh, don't give yourself to practices. Um, that are vain and corrupt. And he's also encouraging them to serve God, to be faithful, to be true, and to continue in the work that God has given them, which is primarily rebuilding the temple and restoring Jerusalem and then in time the nation of Israel. Now as Zechariah's letter, this book, his preaching begins to come to a close, Zechariah is encouraging God's people with this vision Um, that is to become a a future day. And so he's looking at weary people, you know, I'm not sure how tired we are tonight, but he's looking at a group of people engaged in a a work that's extracting and taking a toll on them. And there may be some minor temptation to quit, and he's saying, don't quit. Because there's coming a day, in that day, if you'll just keep working, there's going to be a day when things are going to be better. And we talked about last week's night, remember this, it's all going to work out. It's going to be okay. And he's saying that to him. In that day, God's going to fight for you. And a day's coming when the, when the city's going to be rebuilt. And a day's going to come when, the, when even your, your oldest and weakest man is going to look like a warrior in the eyes of other people. And we, we, we rehearsed those texts. And so he's encouraging these people with this thought that God will protect them from their enemies and cause them to be repentant and cleansed. And then he will set them on a path that's free from sin, idolatry, and wickedness. And of course, to this future vision you know, these people would have been receptive. If I told you, hey, one day is going to come and, um, you know, we'll be debt free and, and uh, this church will be filled with people. And, and, and you know, we, I paint some great vision. We'd all go, man, I'm all for that. That sounds great. You know, let's, let's continue our work to, to make that day happen. And so the people, you know, probably receiving this, they're probably a little tired and probably want the day to come tomorrow, not next week. Or next year, or you know, a couple centuries, but you know, they're probably receptive. But then, you know, Jesus um, or the Lord through Zechariah gives another thought. Zechariah now gives a process that has to be engaged in for that day to come. Okay? So I'm looking at you and I'm saying, I know you're tired, I know you're weary, but a better day's coming. And we all go, man, that's great news, that's great news. And then I say, but, but, but wait, for a better day to come, there's a process that we have to go through to get to that day. And now you're all looking at me like, what, what are you about to say? You know, well, you got to pass out 50,000 tracks in August, you know, something like that. <laughs> That's the idea. That's where we're at. This is kind of like, in that day, is going to happen? But to get there, there's a process that it has to be engaged in. So Zechariah in these verses gives a process or a journey, a path that has to be traveled to get to that day. Now, this message is not going to be so eagerly and enthusiastically received as the first part. And so, in chapters 12 and part 13, verses 1 through 6, in that day, you know, Zechariah's promising blessing, and we've talked about that. But verse 7 begins the process to get to that day. Before the blessing, there must first come hardship. There must become a scattering, and a purification must occur. Um, So let's say a guy is walking down the street, and he's going to one of those little strip malls, and he sees a poster, and it's a recruiting office. And uh, it's for the Marine Corps, and he sees a guy standing there in dress blues, white hat, white gloves, standing at attention, looking really sharp and dapper, and he he you know he just looks pressed and, and nice, and uh, you know you look at that and think, man that you know for a young guy that I want to do that, that's who I want to be, that 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 would be you know really awesome, and so you know you, you walk in the office and you say hey sign me up I want to I want to look like that. And the recruiter's gonna say, well, okay, maybe you can, but before you can dress in the dress blues and the, and the white hat and the gloves, there's a process that you have to go through first. You with me? That's probably gonna temper that young man's enthusiasm if that process is described in detail, right? We're talking about boot camp, you know. And of course, if you're talking about Marines or maybe the SEALs or Rangers, you know, whatever, there's a process you have to go through to get to that product. And so, this is what Zechariah is describing to the people. There's a process that, that you have to go through. So, in verse 7, if you want to look there with me tonight, it begins with God saying, okay, in that day, blessing is going to come, but here's what's going to happen first. God Himself calls for judgment. So, He's looking at those people and say, okay, we have to get right As a church family, we want further blessing, we have to get right. So, God Himself calls for judgment. And the idea in verse 7 of a sword, in the Old Testament the sword is always, as is in the book of Revelation, is connected to judgment. And, And so, we see God calling for judgment. And the judgment is twofold, really directed towards two audiences. And the first one is an audience that we have seen and studied Uh, at least three times in the book of Zechariah. We see God's judgment and His angst and ire uh, directed towards specifically a a faulty and corrupt leadership in Israel. And He's probably speaking of both political corruption and spiritual corruption, religious corruption. Most commentators believe He's addressing the leadership politically in Israel who's probably non-Davidic. They're allowing men who are not from the lineage of David to lead and rule them, and they're not doing a good job. And we see this in the book of Ezekiel. We reference there. Ezekiel and Zechariah have a lot in common. Is they, they, were, they had a lot of woes to speak to the pastors, the shepherds, the leadership of Israel, and that God would judge them. And so God's saying, I'm going to get you people to that day, but the process begins with cleansing house of his corrupt leadership. We're going to smite the shepherd. Now in the text it's singular. We have read in chapters 10-11 that it's plural. Uh, There's someone specific in mind here in Zechariah's day. I don't know that. But the principle is there. Judgment has to come against the leadership for leading the people astray. In both Ezekiel and Zechariah the leadership was self-serving. They were a bane to the Jewish people. They didn't really care about them. They were just trying to extract from the people what they could. So, here we see in verse 7 a severe escalation in judgment um, in what's happening to the shepherds. The sword, again, is a a reference to judgment. It's a call for the shepherds or the shepherd to be smitten. Now, the Hebrew word smitten is very specific and graphic. It means to be um, not cut, but pierced it's referred to a fatal blow. So he's saying, to get to a better place, we have to strike a fatal blow to faulty leadership and false leadership and bad leadership in Israel. In other words, we're not just gonna tolerate anymore, we're going to cut out the cancer that is poor political leadership. And, and we see this escalation, and let me just rehearse it. In chapter 10, verse three, the shepherds were threatened. In chapter 11, verse 3, they said that their pastor was going to be taken away, or their means of gain would be taken away. In 11.7, there's a call for the shepherds to, to receive serious injury. And now in 13.7, it's a call for fatal injury or a fatal blow to be smitten. I say it this way, God's patience with negligent leadership prior to that day is done. He, he wants poor leadership taken away. So, as we've learned previously, God wants to replace poor leadership with His own leadership. And He says, I will step in and be a good shepherd. This is a previous study that we had. So, that's the beginning of the process. So, here we are. Life's hard. We're rebuilding the temple. It's, it's tough. But, hey, a day's coming when all these blessings will come. But the first thing that has to happen is, I'm going to smite the shepherds. I'm going to get rid of the negligent leadership in Israel. So we're going to disrupt the leadership. Step 2. And after that happens, the sheep are going to be scattered. Okay? Who are the sheep? You guys are the sheep. Israel's the sheep. Okay? And they're going to well, Wait a second. We want to get to a better day. But you're going to scatter us and you know, yep, it's going to happen. There's just a, a, a principle here, and this is what Jesus alludes to, that when you take away leadership, the people following that leadership, who are depending on it, even if corrupt, they scatter. They're, they're just, they don't know where to go. And so then it becomes every you know, every man doing what's right in his own eyes or whatever else. It's just when you take uh, a head out, then the body scatters. The flock scatters. People begin to feel lost and confused. Um, that's true even in poor leadership. But you have no leadership. Well, you remove all leadership, you know, today from America, all political guidance, it would be anarchy and chaos. That's a little bit of what he's implying here. Smite the shepherd, and I'm going to smite him, and you all going to be scattered. That's just a true principle, regardless of good or bad leadership. When headship is removed, people tend to disperse. That'd be true in your home. That'd be true in a business. That'd be true in a sports franchise. That'd be true in a company. And that'd be true in a nation. That's why government transitions always feel a little scary. Um, that's when it's the most vulnerable. Because if leadership fails, well, the sheep, the people can be scattered. So that's audience number one. Well, who's audience number two? Well, to get us to that day, we're not just going to remove poor leadership, but I'm going to scatter you, and now I'm going to refine you, and I'm going to discipline you. It's, this is not a fun way to get where we want to go. But what he says here is pretty severe. I'm going to smite the shepherd, the sheep are going to be scattered. It's so severe is the scattering that two-thirds of the sheep are going to die. That's what he says in the text. Two-thirds will be lost. One-third is going to remain. So, I'm taken out. I'm a bad leader you're going to be scattered, and then everyone from here over is lost. And you're all that's left. So, what do you get? Further discipline and purification is the next step. Now, this is tough. But this is what God is describing is going to be required. So, let's just just look here. So, you're not just looking at me. So he says, Awake, O sword, against my shepherd, and against the man that is my fellow. So he's talking about this, a man who's leading his people, saith the Lord of Smite the shepherd, and the sheep will be scattered. Now, what's God going to do if the sheep are scattered? And I will turn my hand upon the little ones. Who's turning their hand upon the, the, the scattered sheep? God is. What's He mean by that? Well, my hand. He's disciplining them. He's, he's disciplining a people If we think about the larger message of Zechariah, here's people who've come back, but they're already being tempted to go back to Baal again. They're already tempted to extort again. They've already allowed poor leadership in, and God says, you cannot get where I want to take you going that way. So I'm going to fix this leadership problem once and for all, and then I'm going to work on your heart so we don't do this again, is what he's getting to. So, just stop for a moment and consider what's being said. A great, wonderful day is coming, but first, leadership has been removed because it's a hindrance, and now has become a time of dispersing and difficulty and loss. And then, God says, I'll take the remaining one third, and then I will refine them like silver and gold. So, you think all oh, this has been difficult? Now I'm going to take you who remain, and I'm going to sift you like wheat. I'm going to take you through a further difficult process. Isn't this encouraging? There's, there's a principle that's being taught here. He says literally, I'm going to take you who remain through the fire. In other words, I'm going to go, it's going to go from bad to worse before it gets better. And again, to use maybe a military illustration, let me, let me, you know, let's say I'm talking about Navy SEALs. And so, you know, you start here with everyone and then, you know, you you shake their world. You know, you remove them from mom and daddy and everything else. So they're feeling very vulnerable. And so before you get from the group who started you're probably going to at least have an attrition of two-thirds, right? Before you get to the silver and the gold who's left. You followed the idea? Okay. Everyone starts out here, two-thirds are going to fall out. Not going to be to, to take the scattering, this difficult process, gonna build up, and you're gonna be left with a guy standing in the uniform who's been tried through fire, who's standing as silver and gold. In the text it says it's going to, going to take this whole process of smiting, scattering, diminishing, fire, and trying to get to this place. For the people finally to say, those of you who are left, is my God. Because that's how it ends. Then they will cry out to me and say... Thou art my God. And then He will say to them, and you are my people. But that deep level of intimacy and knowledge between God and His people doesn't occur until a smiting, a scattering, a sifting, sorting, and then finally a cry out to God. And then that day will come. This is a process that's required to get to purity. This is the process where we find and discover loyalty. In the New Testament, in different context, this principle of purity coming from pain, it's it's literally from beginning to the end of the New Testament. It's what we're studying in the book of Revelation. This is what Jesus is referring to when He refers to this principle, smite the shepherd, the sheep will be scattered, and get this moment And the end result of that will be a relationship between God and His people. When Jesus was referring to this text it's different because Jesus isn't a bad shepherd who is being smitten. Jesus is the good shepherd who's being smitten for all the bad people. His disciples were scattered, but through the process, they all found God again, and redemption, and salvation, and of course, the church was made and born. But the process is the same. The principle is the same. To get from here to, you are my God, and you are my people, Jesus went through he was smitten, He went through pain for us. is what Jesus is referring to there, this, this principle of pain coming before purity. And um, for us, that principle exists as well. Now, application here, I think, is obvious. Theologically, that day, um, we'll say that, our salvation, ultimately heaven. Is provided for us through the pain and the suffering of Jesus Christ being smitten for us. We were like sheep gone astray, right? The Bible says that that's what we're like. We're like sheep who've gone astray. We were scattered, but yet the Holy Spirit found us. And we cried out one day, Thou art my God. And when we did, he said, You are my people. And theologically, I'm assuming. Everyone in this room has been through that process. Through the pain of Jesus, we were like sheep gone astray, but He found us and we've been saved. That was God's process for making us His people through His trial and suffering. And again, this repetitive New Testament theme is also true for us in Christian life, that the godly will in fact suffer persecution that we will be refined as though by fire, that our faith will be tried, and that through patience and long-suffering, we will overcome. The principle of the New Testament is that the pathway to prizes travels through difficult and dangerous roads. And guess what? This message is seldom embraced. And because it's not embraced, then we don't have many Christians that look like silver and gold. Because we really don't want to be submit to any kind of refiner's fire. <laughs> you see, the Apostle Paul got this. For a sake of time, I'm not going to turn there. You know the text. 2 Corinthians chapter 12. Apostle Paul had a thorn in the flesh. He besought the Lord three times to take it away. The Lord said, Nope, I gave you this for a reason because otherwise you'd be exalted, this is, to, this is to debase you, to humble you. And Paul said, okay, I see that, I get that. And he said, so very gladly then will I embrace, I will welcome, I will accept hardship, difficulty, trials, tribulation, because when I am weak, then he is what? In other words, through the pain of life, Paul realized that's when he cried out, as he did, his great twins, thou art my God, And God said, you're mine, Paul. And God greatly used Paul, didn't He? Because Paul embraced the principle that pain comes before not just purity, but probably also utility, usefulness in the Christian life. Now, that's everywhere in the New Testament. But a takeaway for us very quickly, to apply this even more directly, And of course, you know where I'm going. Let me me say this way. Trials and difficulties don't have to be arbitrary and meaningless in our life. Trials and difficulties do not have to be arbitrary and meaningless in our life. When hardship comes for us, it's not just a setback. Rather, it is an opportunity for us to be repositioned into a greater proximity to God if we call out to Him. There will be times in your life where you're going to feel like, um, you might not say this way, my shepherd was scattered and I feel smitten. You know, I feel smitten and and I'm scattered. But there's going to be times in your life you're going to feel lost, right? Like, why is this happening to me? What's going on? This is not making sense. I don't feel safe. I don't feel secure. You're going to feel a sense of vulnerability that someone without a shepherd might feel. We're all going to get that. Well, those moments don't have to be just wasted on worry and fret and anxiety. Trials and difficulties don't have to be arbitrary and meaningless. They are an opportunity to extend further trust and rely on God in a greater way. Too often you and I waste hardship by not allowing us to take it to the place of Zechariah chapter 13 verse 9 of calling upon the Lord in that moment like Paul did, and like the children of Israel will do one day when God fights for them. Instead, we go through some thorn in the flesh. We go through some smiting and scattering and difficulty and trial and refining and fire and whatever else. And we respond by complaining. And we respond by moaning. And we allow the very opposite that God wants to happen. We grow bitter. We get angry and we totally lose sight of God. And many people walk away from the Lord when God wanted the time to be a, an opportunity to walk towards Him. We, we don't just become scattered, we become lost. And we stay lost. Instead of embracing life's difficulties, we, we choose not to. You know, I, I say things like this from the pulpit sometimes. I don't often think we even really understand what it means to be Christian. The things that we tag as Christian has always perplexed me. You know. It's so superficial. But elementary Christianity, okay? Elementary Christianity is learning to embrace hardship minus a negative spirit. Okay? So you want to measure your Christian growth, there you go. There you go. How, What do we do that? Navigating being smitten, scattered, scathed, tested, fire, and yet though he slay me, yet will I trust him, you know, Job said. See, that's the big, that's like the ABCs of Christianity. You can do a lot of other things, you know, people emphasizing whatever. How about that? I'll be faithful and true to God no matter what He brings. I can handle it because when I am weak, then He is strong. I'm going to to embrace this. I'm going to call out to God, and we're going to move to a place of greater intimacy because of what I'm experiencing. A second broader context might be this. You know, just... Just for life in general, not only do we forfeit an intimate relationship with God by not embracing difficulty in a more positive way, but how about just a life principle? This would be good for you young people, for really all of us. We often forfeit many of the prizes and rewards of life because we refuse to give up a life of ease and comfort. I don't want to be smitten. I don't want to be scattered. I don't want to be refined. I don't want to do what's difficult. I don't want to endure pain. And I talk about sometimes as a choice. In other words, um, there are people who will not complete an education because it's too hard. There are people who will not stick through the summer months of football in August to play in September and October because it's too hot and too hard. I'm not saying you should. I'm just saying as a principle, people don't want the pain before the prize. People won't save because it cuts into the budget of today. They let a marriage go because sometimes saving it is just too much work. And you know, for us, um, the future of East Baptist Church probably hinges on our willingness as a membership to do some things that might discomfort us, right? In other words, you know, I'm gonna say to you this Sunday night, grab a route map. This is so silly, but whatever. We're so, we so dumbed down these things. I'm trying to make application. We're gonna ask you to take a route map of 100, 200 homes and to complete that in the entire month of August. And some of us can look at that and go, whoa, it's hot outside. I'm not being silly. I'm being very serious. That would take my Monday nights. (laughs) I guess it might. Okay, we don't have to do it, but neither does Ethan have to grow and see people come as a result of invitations. It's a choice. They're not going to just magically walk in the back doors because we're here. Some will because they drive by and they live in proximity to us. But people typically don't come to a place they've not been invited to. Amen, preacher. I mean, why why, why would they? There's dozens of churches here. If you have a spiritual itch or whatever, you know, you're going to go in this next door closest to you. Most people don't know the difference between Baptist and Pentecostal or whatever else. Why would they come if you don't invite them? And it's just not my job to do it. It's yours, right? You've got to have skin in the game. You have a responsibility. Um, part of the people, reason people are being punished because they, they depended too much on leadership to get things done for them. And when the leadership failed, they all failed too. So, you know, this is a, like a call to personal responsibility for everyone in the church to do their part. Um... We want to have church, someone's got to watch the nursery, someone's got to clean the building, someone's got to cut the grass. In other words, people kind of have to do something that not everyone wants to do to get us where we want to be. Right? You know, I'm sure everyone here could assign another use to your 10% that you may or may not give or to missions or whatever else because that requires some discipline and that's hard and it's not easy, at least initially. But some people will never travel that road, so they'll never find the prize. So they never lay up treasures towards heaven and they'll never get the prizes that would come as a result of doing so. Someone will never, someone will attend a church their entire life and never have anyone visit because of them. Does that even make sense to you? That you could attend a church for years and no one ever come these doors as a result of your efforts, not mine, not a billboard, not my tracks, not what I do. Will someone ever darken the leaves of Baptist Church because of what you do? And if you you don't like the sound of that, well, then that's problematic, I think. So many that day kind of blessings are going to never be achieved in life because we won't get off the couch, walk away from our phones and TVs, and give ourselves to a greater pursuit. We're never gonna put, our, put ourselves in a place of dependence, hard work, fire, and trial. You know, We might do this, well, if it, if it just comes for me, I'll do my best, but how about this? Would you put yourself out there voluntarily for the sake of a prize? To attain something that's worthy Zechariah's preaching, um, maybe like mine times, at times the past has been, we have to embrace sacrifice and difficulty to get to that day, to have a building to reach the lost, to have it just a continued existence and presence. You know, you're going to have leadership that takes you there, and you're going to have people involved and willing to pay the price. We may have to set aside. what makes us feel comfortable, okay? I don't want us to be smitten in our life. But, you know, um, I feel safe coming to church, and going home, and coming back to church. But, you know, smitten for me might be what makes me feel unsettled and vulnerable is knocking on a door, passing out a track, inviting someone to church, okay? We, we may have to, you know, be willing to go through that to find the prize that we want and that maybe that Eastland needs, and maybe that, maybe that just the Lord intends. So there's a process involved in achieving prizes in life. And the road that has to be traveled isn't always fun, but I promise you this, it's rewarding and it leads to that day. And I don't know what that day, it may be a day where we stand here one day, you get to watch someone being baptized because you invite someone to church. That day for you might be when someone comes down here, kneels on the altar, and, and you see a family changed. I don't know what that day represents completely. It may be that day you stand before God and He says, well done, my good and faithful servant. But don't forfeit what you could have on that day because we just are too comfortable in this one. All right, let me ask you to stand.